Where it became really interesting was couples suggesting that they sleep better when they're together. But actually any sort of objective recording we might do it seemed to suggest the opposite. No matter what data we look at, we will find that socioeconomic status income has a massive impact on sleep. The thing about sleep is, is we don't necessarily have that autonomy. Welcome to Sleep Junkies. I'm Jeff Mann, and we cover the whole conversation on sleep. So a lot of the time, when we're talking about sleep, we're having a conversation about sleep that relates to us very personally as individuals. But humans are naturally social creatures. So today we're going to look at sleep through a different lens. We're talking about a sociology of sleep. Now, sociology is a very wide-ranging, often quite hard to define area of research. But sociology touches on many areas, including relationships, work, socioeconomics, institutions, culture. And all of these things are super relevant to a conversation on sleep. So that's our topic today. We're talking about how the field of sociology can give us some different types of insights into our attitudes towards sleep and how sleep is regarded in a social context. So that's it for the intro. Don't forget, if you like what we're doing at Sleep Junkies, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Also check out the website, sleepjunkies.com. Check out our Facebook group, Sleep Junkies Worldwide. All the social media stuff, Twitter, Instagram. We love hearing from you. We love hearing any comments, any feedback. Right, let's get on with the show. Well, good afternoon. And I'm here with Dr. Robert Meadows from Surrey University. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Really good. Really good. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Rob is part of the Sociology of Sleep group at Surrey University. And sociology is a very, very diverse field. So I'm really excited to talk to you, Rob, and just kind of explore a different way of looking at sleep. I just wondered if you could give our listeners a bit of a background to your academic life. You're a reader at Surrey, and you've been at Surrey since the 90s, I believe. Is that right? Yes, uh, coming up to 20 years, 1999. Wow. Um, so what was your journey into getting involved in sleep? How did this, this sociology group come about at Surrey? I guess uh, in terms of my journey, I'd finished my, my first postgrad degree. I was, I was studying sort of sociology and law at the time. And like most people, wasn't sure what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to get into academic research. Um, so I ended up working in a sleep clinic as part of their data management team. So still very much academically a sociologist, but bouncing around this sleep clinic. And at the time, I think it was Europe's um, largest sleep clinic. And it was it had people in it that, that were working in it with that sort of presence, the British Sleep Society. And it, and it was quite a vibrant place. And whilst I was there, I started to think hang about there's quite a lot going on here, which is sociologically interesting. And at the same time, 
people like Simon Williams um, had just started to publish some of his stuff on moving towards a sociology of sleep. Um, and as I later learned, Sarah Arbor at the University of Surrey had also just received a grant to um, start to explore women's sleep from a sociological perspective with people like um, Professor Deborah Skeen. So how I got into it was was extremely fortuitous in a way that I was in a space that made me think in a particular way and others were doing it as well and it all sort of came together. And I guess that in a sense is where we got um, where the sociology of sleep group came from here um, because I started a PhD on sort of men's understandings of sleep um, particularly within sort of heterosexual couples and how they negotiate the power dynamics around sleep and sleeping. Um, and Sarah became my supervisor. And then the team just started to grow as we got um, sort of new ideas, new funding, um, new PhD students, and uh, and we spread. In general, sort of around the world, what is the, the state of the, the research field, you know, looking at sleep from this sociological perspective? Are you quite unique in that respect? Are there other similar groups around the world? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess we we were unique in the sense of we were quite a big collective. Um, so sort of a big, uh, partly because Surrey, as I'm, I'm sure you know, is, is a, a good place to work if you're interested in sleep. We've got um, a multidisciplinary sleep research centre, people like Professor Dirk Andeek, Malcolm Von Schantz, Simon Archer, Deborah Skeen. So we tended to have a bigger group here, but around the globe, we've got sort of wonderful scholars, uh, Matt Wolf-Mayer, Kenton Croker, um, I read Maloney. There's, there are people around sort of writing and obviously here at Warwick, Simon Williams, who's written Sleep and Society, the book and Politics of Sleep. I guess as well, it, it feeds into the ambiguities or the grey areas a little bit in the sociology of sleep, because I think we can think about how we approach sleep as sort of one of three groups, maybe. So there's those that might come at it just purely as a physiological process. But then there's a, a group who have an interest in society and its relationship with sleep, but, but possibly much more in a causative way. So a social causation model. So how society impacts on sleep. And there's a huge amount of research around that um, because I guess that's how you describe the sort of sleep health phenomenon. You know, we've got journals, we've got Lauren Hale, Michael Grandner, lots of, of people working at that level, which in a sense to me is moving towards sort of sociology. I guess we're a, a little bit, further away from that in this sort of third group in the sense that for us society isn't just this sort of social causation it is our central focus uh, and that's why we get that mantra that we often roll out that you know we're all about how when where we sleep depends on the type of society in which we live um, and those shifting rules norms morality surrounding sleep that then brings in historians cultural geographers so to answer your question you know how sort of vibrant is it it's really vibrant. It's just it's not always easy to spot who might go under the label. I guess there are an infinite number of rabbit holes you could yeah, you start diving into. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about some of your specific research later, and we're also going to talk about this idea of the medicalization of sleep. Before we get into that, correct me if I'm wrong, in my unscientific, my layman's language, a really, really broad overview of the sociological approach to sleep is that sleep it occurs in a social context and there are many many factors if you're looking at sleep from a health or a medical perspective your doctor your physician your psychologist won't necessarily look into so things like age and gender and relationships and income 
inequalities. All of these could have their own podcasts on their own. But I, I just wondered if you could just give us a really top level overview of some of these factors. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. In fact, so I think you're absolutely right in a sense that if we were going to try and define what we're doing in it in a, in a short way, it would be just that, you know, sleep occurs in a social context. One of the things we try and do or we're trying to drive towards at the moment is is talk about sleep, not so much as a behavior, but as a practice. Because when we talk about it as a behavior, it seems to wed it very much in the brain in sort of cognitive psychology yep. which obviously has a place but when we talk about it as a practice i think we're immediately bringing in that there's more to it than just the individual um, and yes yeah, so some of the early stuff the group did was very much around age and gender some of those early sort of grants um jenny hislop and sarah arbor and i think they were quite interested in i guess the way that sleep's embedded within temporal dynamics you know, one of those obviously might be chronological aging, biological aging, which is recognised and accepted in the sleep field. There's lots of debates about whether it's sleep need that's changing or, you know, that type of thing. But what we do is then there are other sort of temporal dynamics that we'd be interested in as well, such as the changes in institutional structures. So work, um, what happens when you retire. Um, there's a wonderful study that came out of America that suggests that actually even retired people are still couching their sleep problems in terms of work. Um, so right. we're just building different sort of layers of context on. So something else we might look at in terms of aging and gender is also the relational structures. So how we move in and out of relationships, whether that be through divorce, separation, widowhood, and how that can sort of shift sleep. Um, and also those sort of biographical transitions as we as we have children or we become carers. And so we're adding layers. Um, and I guess the other thing is it's never just what's happening to sleep. It's always about the questions then about how's it understood. So we've done studies on how older people are quite resistant to the idea of napping because it has that sort of moral aspect to it of laziness. And, um, and actually you might be talking to them about napping and they might think you're talking about something completely different because they have different terms for it um, so it's often the meanings the morals as well that we focus on yeah so age is it's kind of something that a lot of people can look at in terms of uh, you know physiological processes because you know our bodies are changing but these other aspects relationships for instance childcare and, and getting married and all that and you've done some you've done some work on how people perceive their sleep in, you know, between married couples and couples who aren't married. Yeah, well, this was my my early passion, I guess, was was um, sort of the dyadic nature of sleep, couple sleep. So about 15 years ago, what we were trying to do was essentially just show that sleep wasn't an individual phenomenon by linking sort of actigraphy movement data and showing how um, there's a strong correlation with the people you're sharing, not just a bed with, but also households. Really um, trying to get in depth, in detail into the everyday lives of households, even things like deciding when to go to bed. Um, whether to share a bed and what happens you know symbolically if one partner sort of wants to to sleep apart and and how children might perceive that so yeah we've done lots of research on couples that's shown that actually it is quite driven by not just biological need physiological drivers it's also driven by sort of the way that we are expected to behave the power dynamics within households um, structures of sort of masculinities or you know ways we are expected to be men and women where it became really interesting was when we started to see that real tension, which I think others had, had found as well, about couples suggesting that they sleep better when they're together. 
but actually any sort of objective recording we might do, it seemed to suggest the opposite. So that idea that, you know, you, you sleep better if you're in bed with your partner, um, even though it doesn't look like that when we look at actigraphy. That's an interesting one, isn't it? There's been a few bits of research over the last couple of years. I've seen some people saying that couples sleep better apart, um, which kind of goes against the grain a bit, doesn't it? Because that's that's not a cultural or a societal expectation, is it? We're expected, if you're a couple, to sleep in the same bed. Absolutely, which in itself is an interesting thing, I think, to explore. Where did that come from? And and, and the time we were doing it, I think Jim Horn had um, just done a study um, where he'd been quite clear, I think, in his analysis that when you were sleeping in the same bed, your sleep was, was worse. Um, even though you thought it was better. And and that's where I, I guess we tried to look to see if relationship quality was, was an important uh, mediator of that sort of quite complex situation. We got access to some data of 60,000 people and did some analysis of, of both your marital status and your quality and then sort of what it does to your subjective sleep. Even being in an unhappy marriage seems to give you some sort of sleep premium above other relationship types, which again, we're still trying to unravel what it is about the sort of form and function of marriage that seems to have such an impact on sleep. Yeah. Um, what about aspects of poverty and inequality? I know there's there seems to be an increasing body of work being done looking at socioeconomic effects on sleep. And, you know, that feeds into different um, ethnic communities and racial disparities between sleep, which are sometimes a little controversial. You know, we've had people commenting on some of our articles or Facebook posts saying, you know, just saying, well, deal with it, basically, you know, these aren't real issues, but they are real issues and there are real disparities. Well, I certainly would. Yeah, I'd agree with you, particularly um, socioeconomic status, which is something we've been quite keen to explore. It's extremely robust. No matter what data we look at, we will find that socioeconomic status income has a massive impact on sleep. Um, and we're not alone. You know, I think every group that's looked at sleep health is, is finding that disparity. It's an interesting thing, this idea of people just deal with it. <laughs> How? Yeah, there, there was one, um, <laughs> one comment a while ago, and, and I think I posted an article exploring some research into um, black communities in America and comparing sleep. Some real dismissive comments saying that, well, I've got a sleep problem. These people's problems aren't real sleep problems. You know, I've got a medical condition. So there are these kind of attitudes that these things aren't really that serious. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think as, as well, that idea of um, push through it or sort of deal with it, it does suggest that we have an autonomy over sleep. And I think in terms of a, of a health practice, it's quite an interesting one because you might say to me, you know, go and eat your five fruit and vegetables or don't smoke or drink your two litres of water. And, and it'd be very clear. And I could have an element of control over that. But I think, the, as we all know, the thing about sleep is is we don't necessarily have the autonomy, possibly. This is where yeah. Lauren Hale and Benjamin Hale have written about. We do need to think about this a little bit differently because of that that fundamental sort of difference as, as a practice. Is we don't, we don't have control over it necessarily. Um, yeah. So something I picked up on, you co-authored this chapter, Sociology of Sleep. What was the, the the book? Oh, I think that was the Sleep, Health and Society, the second edition. I picked up on this point you made that the kind of work you're, you're involved in, it's rather than targeting sleep itself, you're kind of focusing on the resources and and the opportunities. I think that's a nice way of, of framing it because 
this expands the conversation about how we look at ways to tackle sleep rather than dealing with the sleep problems themselves. Yeah, and no, it's, it's a very good um, good re- reading of probably what's a not, not a very much fun chapter. Um, yeah, and I think we've had lots of discussions um, amongst ourselves here about whether actually it's a sociology of sleep or a sociology of sleeping. Um, and again, it, it does come from work of people like sort of Lauren Hale. We're not alone in thinking that actually it's that context, it's those resources, it's those opportunities, both on a grand structural scale, which might be austerity is obviously going to limit some opportunities. But I guess for us, it's also what's going on in that very micro everyday experience of, say, households or partners or couples, because you're always getting this idea of resources and opportunities playing out unequally, I think. Yeah, yeah. One other aspect uh, we, we didn't touch upon, I want to talk about your your work specifically with addiction. This is a topic that's quite relevant at the moment, especially in America, where we've got this big problem with opioid addiction. You've been doing some work in this area, and it's quite timely. And I just wondered if you could just talk about that briefly. As you know, there's there's a considerable sort of biomedical literature that talks about the importance of sleep in addiction and recovery. So sleep problems might be a reason why we might take a substance in the first place. Sleep during that recovery process can be quite difficult. And we know from some of the biomedical literature that that in itself can lead people to relapse. So we were very interested in this, but as you can imagine from what I've I've been saying, we felt that it needed to take a much wider view in terms of the context, the social context, uh, the lives, the biographies, and sort of the environments that, that people are in. The study that we've done, what we've just completed, was looking at people who were in residential rehabilitation. I guess two key things that that we're finding quite interesting at the moment is the first one is sleep seems to be quite a baggy concept. But when we're talking to people, they're using this quite diverse range of, of terminology, lexicon. So they might talk about alcoholic sleep, anxious sleep, broken sleep. You know, I could go on. There was um, hundreds of different ways. And what it potentially means is is that we're not always talking to people about the same things. It's more than just people using different words. They can actually be very different versions of, of, of sleep. Um, other things that I think were quite interesting and important potentially in terms of building an intervention um, is an assumption that biology had broken. So they sort of lost faith in, in the biology. It was it, Their bodies were seen as very fragile. And when you lose faith in your body, you start to question if sleep will ever come back. Mm. Um, so what we get then, I guess, in the absence of, of a trust in your body is a trust in the structures because sleep does come back. But if you're not seeing it as something that your body essentially has helped you do, you start to see it as something which the environment's helped you do, which can trigger quite intense concerns when you're about to leave that environment. You start to wonder if that means your sleep's going to go back um, to being problematic as well. We've done this in sort of maybe two or three different sites. It's, it's early days. We think they're quite interesting sort of ideas to build on um, because there isn't an, an easy, there isn't a sort of a go-to intervention here. There's some CBT that's been adapted for alcohol, but given the magnitude of, of the challenge, the problem, there isn't a huge range of interventions. Yeah, it was quite interesting to see that CBT, which is being promoted as pretty much a first line treatment for sleep problems. But you found that in terms of people recovering from addiction, it maybe didn't have the same effectiveness. So I guess the idea that these behavioral therapies 
aren't going to be so effective because the, the problems are more deep-rooted maybe that's a bit of a crude way of explaining it but i i don't know does that make any sense yeah yeah absolutely i guess the first thing so we've we've not um run a trial of cbt ourselves but certainly the literature on on cbt here is showing very mixed results which is what drove us in part to sort of have a different look at it but you're absolutely right you know cbt which is this frontline thing which you know d- developed very much in insomnia that's different I think this is not necessarily insomnia that we're thinking about with this population. What we're doing is we're starting to build an understanding of why it might not be useful for everyone or, or certainly not as useful as it is in other populations because it's it's a very focused, um, very specific, targeted, which is ignoring, I suppose, all this sort of social disadvantage, but all this complex relationship these people develop with ideas of sleep over time. You know, it becomes something that they... They can want because it indicates return to a normal life, but they sort of start to lose faith in their body. And they start to trust very tight structures too much. And that's where we're at is they may be thinking, okay, well, how does that then travel into thinking about a, an adapted CBT or something completely different? Okay, well, we could talk about these subjects for hours and hours and hours, but I want to keep it a bit focused. And I'm really interested in this concept that you explain again in this chapter about the medicalization of sleep. I think it's really important because sleep is universal and sleep is much more than a medical or a health issue. But certainly in the mainstream media and conversations we have, you know, on the podcast and in general, I don't know, would you agree sleep is increasingly being seen as something that's associated with medicine and health? And I'm wondering if this trend is is a useful trend, if it's a harmful trend or if it's something we can't avoid. Yeah. Do you think um, sleep's medicalized? Am I allowed to ask you a question? Because I'm not sure. What I see when I personally talk to people with sleep problems is people want fixes, people want solutions. Generally, those conversations tend to be what are the solutions and the solutions that tend to be medicalized or health interventions rather than looking at things that we talked about earlier, you know, relationships, you know, maybe your work. And of course, people are talking about how things like your work and obviously shift work can affect your sleep. But in my perception, these things tend to be secondary to the medicalized fixes. Yeah, I think it's it's an area that very a good example of, of how medicalization can be quite complex. I think you're right that there are things that seem to indicate that sleep has sort of become medicalized. You know, we have and certainly in some parts of the world very strong ideas of sleep medicine. The way that it might be reported and framed seems to be very much in a, in a medical way. But I guess there's also other things that suggest maybe it's, it's not. So we have these debates. If you have a look at the uh, National Health Service, website i haven't done for a while but um, if you look at insomnia it says something like insomnia will usually get better if you try a bit of self-help um and and that sort of indicates that it is pushing us away to an individual you know just try and fix it yourself you don't need medicine you don't you don't need medicalization simon williams did a um, study of the way that insomnia gets reported in the in the media and again it was very much a sort of an individualized thing but very different from say obstructive sleep apnea so I do think it's it's quite complex. I'm not sure. I think maybe aspects of sleep are becoming increasingly medicalized, but possibly part, part of the problems with other aspects of sleep is 
is that they're being increasingly individualized. So that so you're right, they're still ignoring the context, but they're pushing it away just back to the individual. Yeah, okay. Um, that's a nice way of looking at it. You talked about the NHS saying these things can be solved with self-help. Well, I, th- I think if people had ways to solve <laughs> problems on their own, they probably would have done them already. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a wonderful example of how everything's quite complex. And I do think things like sleep apnea look very medicalized, insomnia possibly less so. And, and then we still come back to this issue of do we actually have sort of a sleep medicine in the UK? I know sort of bouncing around the, the circuit and talking to people, we used to always sort of ask who owns sleep in the UK as well? Is it a respiratory thing? Is it a, is it, is it psychology sort of thing? Or um, it's become this sort of quite rich and wonderful smorgasbord where even people like me can jump on the, on the topic. But does that mean it's becoming less medicalized? Yeah. So another thing that you've touched upon in your work is we've got this moral aspect that we mentioned a little bit earlier. Some people might perceive a sleep problem as not really being a problem because work expectations, um, you know, I have to work long hours, family expectations, you know, maybe someone's got young children. So they think, well, maybe my, my issues aren't really issues. So I, do I really need to see a doctor? At what point do people actually think I, I do need some help here? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's an area where sociology hasn't done as much as it could. Um, because we have a, in, just in general sort of health research, we have a long history of looking at help seeking and what triggers it. And we haven't really paralleled that with asking that question of what makes someone sort of decide to go to a doctor or to um, go to a local chemist and buy some over-the-counter stuff or um, what's the threshold, what's the sort of help-seeking practices. Um, but it is, it's really important. Particularly, I think, I've often wondered as well, and some of the early research I did on on men, um, that often tell me that you could only figure out if you were too sleepy to do something when you tried to do it. Um, and I think this is the really interesting thing with sort of sleepy driving as well is, is you know, you only know if you were too tired to do something once you've tried to do it. We need to explore much more about that help-seeking behaviour and how it links into particularly things like gender. What about the gender aspect and different expectations from from men and women? I mean, there's this um, this idea of manly wakefulness and this kind of macho idea of not needing to sleep. What have you found in in your research about the different expectations and disparities between men and women and their expectations of sleep? Yeah, that's so. We with the men, I went into we did a study of men, and I, I must admit, you sort of you go in and thinking you'd get that very sort of macho, and people were writing a lot about the time about that sort of macho culture of sleep, particularly in IT industries. Um, um, but actually, the the men I spoke to, there's only about forty of them, so it's quite you know you wouldn't want to generalise, but they did have quite a sort of macho, dismissive view of sleep, but also at the same time. Um, recognized that it was quite necessary for them to be able to do their sort of you know roles the next day um, so you get this tension where in a sense they didn't want to care about sleep but they did realize that the stuff that they had to care about sleep was important and and i think what was interesting to us at least it seemed to map onto what i think's bubbling at sort of a, a much more sort of cultural level is we do still have this sleep is for wimps culture but we also have to recognize, I think, you know, workplaces are emphasizing sleep in terms of 
productivity. There's a there's an industry around sort of sleep which is telling us we should be caring about it. So I do think we're having this sort of interesting clash of you know sleep is for wimps. We should be working, but sleep is really important for working. And what was interesting is I think that's what we saw playing out in these quite complex male narratives. They didn't want to care, but they knew they had to. But then that's focused on the work and industry and and profit rather than the individual. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so when your your workplace puts in a sleep pod for you, I'm not sure they're being, yeah, tremendously nice uh, in terms of your individual health and well-being. But yeah, I do think it's we're seeing, particularly now as well with the, the tech, which we might come on to, um, these interesting sort of clashes of cultural ideas. And then I guess we have done sort of studies of, of women as well. Women's sleep's always been quite interesting, I think, clinically, biomedically, because of this idea that we often see higher sleep complaints there. But when you know you start looking in the lab, it doesn't look as clear cut as that. Um, the frames of reference that the people we were talking to um, we're influencing their sort of quality sleep now. So we'd have people telling us that they had an absolutely perfect night. But when we go through the diary, when we're unraveling it with them, they're sort of, oh, yeah, I got up to care for my son and this happened and this happened and this happened. But, you know, I slept okay. And then you sort of, well, why do you think that's okay? And I said, because it was better than what it was last week. And I think that's, you know, across disciplines, that's a problem we have is it's these frames of reference that we're trying to unravel. Yeah, yeah. So... We've also got this idea of well, take sleeping pills, for example, which is, is kind of going out of vogue in medical circles, you know, to prescribe these and CBTI is becoming more common. But this idea of if you take some kind of pharmaceutical product or some kind of medical intervention, you're, you're, you're sort of giving in to that. What would you say about that, that those kind of attitudes? Yeah, I think that I think it's it, it's linked to sort of ideas of, you know, sleep should be something that anyone should do. And if you can't do it, you'll be able to do it the next day. So I think in everyday sort of life, we often see sleep will be something that will fix itself. And then when we get those groups where it's coming down to sort of probably actually thinking, I'm going to ask for some help. I think sleep tablets still have quite a strong moral identity. People are still talk about them in terms of them being addictive than being unnatural because we view sleep as just something that's so natural it should just happen anything we take that induces it i think we immediately see as unnatural and shouldn't be in our body so i think a lot of it's that moral fear of addiction and the idea that anything you need to do to help you sleep chemically is probably harmful because it's unnatural certainly i see a lot of people rejecting pharmaceutical solutions in quite a dogmatic way but there are going to be situations where the, there are there aren't any other options. So I, my opinion is I'd, I don't think it's particularly helpful to be to be that dogmatic. Obviously, that there are going to be issues with some people with addictive properties, and these things are only short term solutions. But um, my personal opinion is I think we need to look at all all of the possible solutions and, and not just not just reject anything and and weigh up the risks. Yeah, I, yeah. So I, my own personal opinion would 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 absolutely. Uh, map onto that i think a lot of the narratives we hear about sort of sleeping tablets are because people are imagining a very old generation of sleeping tablets um and and yeah even though you know academically we might see cbt as the frontline thing i'm not sure that's filtered down yet to the everyday practices of of the health system so there will be people that need choices need different options and whatever works best for someone i think works best for someone Mm, okay so what about this term Healthization. I mean, that's a very 
academia type yeah, word that I've not come across. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if that word's in the dictionary. I haven't looked it up. It kind of tags onto this idea of medicalization. I, I just wondered if you could explain why you find this term useful and you know and what it means and how it helps to use this kind of term to explain a, a sort of a high level view of how, how we're looking at sleep. Yeah, we do use horrible words. Um, so I guess part of it is is us still having these debates about whether sleep is is medicalized in a simple sense when we're talking about medicalization we're sort of talking about defining something in medical terms using a medical language to sort of engage with it healthization is about sort of something just becoming moralized so th the way they they're different is we might say that you know sleep's medicalized because it's much more now described in terms of medicine and the language of medicine and medicines being used to treat it but it can also be healthized because we might say well actually we're all caring about our sleep more it's become sort of a moral thing to say i worry about my sleep rather than to say i don't worry about my sleep so the healthization is essentially just making something morally important for us to care about in a sense, the ways like things like exercise and and diet have been absolutely yeah yeah they can coexist. And I think exercise is you know is a nice example. We now worry about our own health, so it's possibly become healthized, but not necessarily medicalized. And and that's why we use the two terms because um, I don't think it's clear cut with either of them whether sleep sort of fits the the bracket. Do we worry about sleep as much as we might worry about exercise? Well, I think it's increasingly getting that way some people use this concept of you know three pillars of health diet exercise and and sleep i think matthew walker says sleep sort of underpins all of these things but if you take these three elements i think you can approach sleep in the same way you could say food exercise and sleep they're very instinctive human things and they're not necessarily things that we need to look at objectively but we do have this concept of optimizing our sleep, optimizing our exercise and optimizing our diet. So how does sociology help in removing those notions and, and looking at, at sleep in particular as something that's not just a performance factor? Maybe talk about how technology, sleep technology fits into this as well, because I know you've done, you, you're doing work in that area as well. So I guess what, what we're really interested in is we like getting into sort of the everyday and, and you're absolutely right. There is a strong sort of message that, you know, sleep should be one of our sort of key health concerns and Public Health England has messages about health, the Sleep Foundation in America. But it's about getting into sort of the everyday life. How are people actually sort of engaging with sleep uh, and does that look like sort of healthization um, and this is where the technology i think even something as simple as as looking at who's using fitbits is that part of a sort of a healthization agenda is it being used because of this sort of idea that sleep like exercise should be something we should be working on optimizing concerning ourselves about almost you know to be a good citizen is to is to care about sleep so the people we're talking to about you know literally just sort of fitbits and the like will often say things to us like well actually i didn't buy it for the sleep it just came with a sleep function we hear people sort of saying to us that you know it's all well and good you know they say it's all well and good it's telling me that you know i had this many minutes in deep sleep um, but what do i do with that when you're talking to people and they might be engaging with calories and and steps and they've got a clear nudge function and they're happy that you know they've they've met their threshold that they understand and they've done their ten thousand steps 
And then it's like, well, it, it told me my sleep, but what can I do? So I think what the technology's done, if, if nothing else for us, is, is give us a way of really empirically trying to sort of engage with some of these issues about how sleep's working in everyday life. Um, there's a lot of debate at the moment about whether it's a, a harmful thing having this technology in the first place. I mean, I'm I'm on the fence. I mean, we, we cover a lot of sleep technology because, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a geek <laughs> and I yeah. like technology. <laughs> and again, I think these things are just tools that can be used for, for good or bad. But there's certainly a lot of people saying that sleep technology is actually causing more harm than good but I, I don't really see it that way. I think it's how you use it not not the actual technology itself it's the problem yeah yeah and I guess our interest is is very neutral at the moment it's more why are people using it um, and what does that tell us about sort of the way that we might engage with sleep um, I love um, I noticed as well um, you've been picking up a little bit on this idea of is it orthsomnia um, yeah and obviously we've had chronorexia and Yes. And again, we yeah. we approach these things very neutrally, but they are possibly something else that might indicate the medicalization of sleep in new ways. We're creating yeah. new diagnostic labels and we're attributing them to the technology. And again, you know, I'm not saying that's the, my view is the technology is harmful, but it is quite interesting that we're having this discourse and whether that itself is part of a, a further medicalization of, of sleep or, or a techno medicalization or some other new word that someone will come up with just to confuse us all. But I do think for us, the technology has been really, really useful in terms of it's brought sleep into people's households in a new way, which has then created different conversations for us, which is, is essentially helping us sort of move forward some of these discussions um, about what people think about sleep and how they're engaging with it. Yeah, well, that's the way I look at these kind of tools, sleep trackers, you know, products to give you some kind of objective look at individual sleep, whether or not this data, you know, has the, the sort of efficacy scientists would like. That's a that's a different issue that we've covered. But um, to me, it, it gives more more understanding, you know, and uh, it's tools that we've never had before. I guess I just I'm really interested in why someone would 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 use them um i guess of most of us probably most of our research is with people that you know don't necessarily class themselves as having a sleep problem um so when you're engaging with people that's you know wearing this tech and monitoring their sleep and why is it because it has become even more sort of a you know a pillar of of health which is filtering down um people are very the people we talk to are very critical of the data very engaged with the data um, so it does, it raises lots of interesting questions about what might be happening to sleep, a, a new sort of era of, of, of the way that sleep's operationalizing and relationally as well in households. Um, you say to someone now, how did you sleep? They can throw their Fitbit at you. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it, it's throwing a bit of a rock into the, you know, the river that we study in. We're getting these interesting pebbles and ripples. So we're asking the same sort of questions, but the text giving us a, a new lens which we're quite interested in yeah yeah another aspect is the media which yeah. i kind of count myself amongst amongst <laughs> this lot there's a big role the media has to play in communicating ideas about sleep and it's kind of at the hub of what we do at sleep junkies you know we try and distill and filter as much as we can down to the layman because I'm a layman, but I'm fascinated by sleep in its entirety. 
Um, but there's, you know, th there's problems. And we see lots of debates on social media about the types of headlines that people are coming up with. You know, the media is driven by clicks and ad impressions these days. So a, a scary headline will get more clicks. But it's not helpful, is it? <laughs> no. Well, sleep sells, I think, is the... Uh is the thing as well is it you know like i think you said earlier it's something we all do so it tends to be something we're all interested in but i think um jim horn just written a book i think on sort of critiquing this idea that we've become much more of a sort of a sleepy society and i guess that's the the idea that a lot of what we think about we're very anxious about sleep we, we consider it to be a problem we're concerned that we're sleeping less than than we used to and you know is that something that's being fueled by the the media and and it's it goes back to some some interesting research that sociologists did way back. Was there a certain point in history where we decided to actually create a problem around sleep? And is that in itself quite an interesting thing? Is the problem we created then sort of become a problem as well? Because obviously anxiety, concerns, is, is not sleep's friend. So it is that the media is quite a complex thing. You talk about this idea of quasi-disorders. I like this yeah. term. <laughs> That's and, probably Simon's. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, you mentioned orthosomnia. That's that's one of them. You know, a couple of years ago, this term came out to describe anxiety caused by people using sleep technology and sleep trackers and chronorexia. I mean, these yeah. aren't medical definitions or you know strict medical diagnostic terms but we, we've got a bit of a, a precedent with this haven't we? with the the dsm um the the manual for mental health disorders and there's been a lot of criticism things like uh caffeine withdrawal or oppositional defiant disorder as being given strict medical diagnostic terms i, I could see a, a danger into some of these what you call quasi disorders turning into actual things that people think oh no i've got orthosomnia or whatever yeah absolutely and i I love your your parallels with with the mental health um, field because obviously you know I think even with the last DSM um, the diagnostic manual there were there were new controversies and and new discussions around sort of mental illnesses so yeah I think they're interesting because they're possibly never actually going to filter down into a clinical setting you know I can't personally ever imagine um, anyone being diagnosed with something like chronorexia or orthosomnia so they are things that sort of have become really interesting i guess for want of a better phrase almost like sort of lay medical terms which i'm not sure we find in many other areas um, and it does it just fuels this concern there's a lot of doom around sleep we seem to be engaging with it as if it's a problem and i think what's interesting from a public health point of view is you know we might be told we should sleep seven and a half hours or whatever it is and the media will pick up on that but from a public health point of view we're told to sleep seven and a half hours or whatever works for us so we know we've got this sort of duration but it can differ depending on our genotypes and it's okay with some models for us to just get an average over seven days it's a very messy public health environment, public health message. And yet we're very simple, I think, within the media about how we're describing it as a problem. Well, there are no, there are no easy answers, but um, where, where do you see like a, an authoritative direction coming from in general from people? If the, if the media are driven by profits and clicks and the media are quoting specific uh, sleep medicine guidelines, I mean, where do people get their, their, their real information about sleep? Apart from our podcasts, of course. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of them except this one. Um, 
I think we need to start again almost. So I think there are fundamental questions that the field actually, I think, recognises that it doesn't know the answer to. So I think there's still discussions to have around, you know, how we should measure sleep. And I found your podcast with, was it Jesse, very interesting there with some of the responses, you know, so how should we measure sleep? How should we sleep? And actually, I think there's a discussion to be had around what sleep is. Um, and I know that might sound a little bit too far out there, but if we think that we've had O'Hanion sort of ask, what is sleep quality? We had Boosie a few years back saying, what is sleep health? I think we're recognising that we don't actually know much. That should probably be our focus for a while. And I do think with these um, technologies and, and particularly as we move to um, or back to sort of EEG-based technologies that people might sort of pick up on, might become quite popular. I think there's a different debate to be had. So not so much about are these things accurate? I think the, the question we need to be thinking about is what's actually happening to our idea of what sleep is? Is it fragmenting? Is it actually becoming something completely different? So my apologetic ramble to what's the authoritative answer here is I don't think there is one. I think we're recognising that because we're asking some quite fundamental questions. But bizarrely, not in a way that we're then all jumping on board and saying, actually, yeah, we, we probably should be looking at these things. I'm in agreement. I think there's room for more more humility yeah. in the sleep community to you know maybe fess up a bit more and say we well we're doing all this clever research but the bigger questions what sleep is can we objectively measure things like sleep quality um certainly it, it, these things are much more than physiological measurements yeah, yeah. So, so, but even so, uh, the wonderful article, I think, O'Hanion, it wasn't just, you know, it was actually sort of starting by saying, we use this term sleep quality and we're not sure what it is. Um, and it was a wonderful recognition, but my only criticism there would be, I think it was then about getting experts into a room. Right. Whereas I think, <laughs> let's let's open up the discussion and let's include particularly people who in everyday life are operationalizing this concept anyway move beyond the confines i think a little bit we can learn to answer questions differently i think we're asking them but we might want to come at them a little bit more broadly yep yep well you've been going for a couple of decades now i think the sociology of, of sleep groups been around for a while yep. and but you have a very well established and high profile sleep research unit there as well so i guess it's about working together isn't it and 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 not being in opposition yeah, which isn't always the easiest thing to do, but I think you know, um, I've always felt fortunate here that we, we do come together. We, we have a wonderful mix of sort of chronobiologists and sleep physiologists, um, psychologists interested in sleep and the sociologists and not always easy, but, but there are conversations. Yeah. I sometimes like to ask guests for some predictions because sleep is such a dynamic field, so many different aspects of of research put you on the spot rob <laughs> can you give us a, a prediction i'm going to give you 20 years in the future what kind of changes you know societal changes could you envisage happening in the best case scenario if people start taking on board the kind of findings that your group and and sleep research as a whole okay i'm good. two very opaque answers the, the first <laughs> one is I, I i can't really answer that because um, I'm trying to write a book with Simon Williams and uh, Mike Greeny, Kate Coveney and, and Eric Hugh, wonderful sort of mixture of scholars. Um, we're trying to put together a book which will look at the sort of the futures of sleep uh, and we still haven't got an answer and I don't want to 
contradict myself. <laughs> right. um, but the but the second thing to to probably offer you the answer I would give now is I think in twenty years' time you and I could possibly be having the same conversation. <laughs> right. And, and I, I know it sounds horribly flippant, but that would be my prediction: is is this will this conversation will stand the test of time. Okay. Well, that's great. We'll be on episode 3020 by then. <laughs> but um, let's, let's come back and, uh, and, and do that conversation. Um, thanks so much, Rob, for your time today. Cheers, Jeff. You've been listening to the Sleep Junkies podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, check out the website. Check out Sleep Junkies Worldwide, our Facebook group. Check us out on social media and we'll see you next time. Sleep well.